0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, welcome to the New Books Network in History. I'm your host today, Benjamin Phelps, and I'm joined with Dr. Abigail Gresta from George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Gresta, welcome.
1: Hello, great to be here.
0: Thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, so we're here today to talk about your book from last year, uh, The Keys to Bread and Wine, uh, kind of an environmental history of late medieval Valencia, um, or as you subtitled, the the interaction between faith, nature, and infrastructure uh, in this town and in this time. Um, First of all, this this was a a finalist recently for a prize from the um, American Society for
1: Environmental History.
0: Congratulations on that.
1: Thank you. Um, Yeah, and it actually, it also won a prize from the European Society for Environmental History um, more recently, so. um, Excellent. Congratulations. Thank you.
0: So how did you how did you come into this book topic and where did this all start?
1: Oh my goodness. So many ways to answer that question. Um I was interested in the kind of interaction between landscape and religion. Mm-hmm. Um and I began thinking about the ways that um that people you know that people make decisions about the landscape and particularly you know how how medieval people balanced a material lens on the environment and a religious lens on the environment because of course a lot of work has been done um demonstrating that medieval people could change their environments mm-hmm. and also demonstrating that they did not Necessarily, always look at natural disasters from a purely religious perspective. You know, sometimes we think that medieval people, you know, anytime anything happened, um, they're thinking about it in terms of God, right? That they're, um, you know, that like there's a thunderstorm and they think it's God. That there's, you know, a flood that, and everything is is God's punishment. Um, and there has been some, you know, research that shows that's not necessarily the case, but there hadn't really been a lot looking at why and how they would flip between those different, mm-hmm. um, registers, you know, how you would balance being able to affect the environment in the material way, and also believing that God played an active role in the environment. Um, and so the way, you know, what the book is about in some sense is, is thinking about how, um, how they balance and the kind of, religious responses to natural disaster and more material responses to natural disaster and how that balance sh- shifts over time mm-hmm. um, and the thing that i found that i think was, it was surprised me the most is that the material responses the kind of you know infrastructure improvements for example actually come first
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know we think of there being a progression from, you know, from a kind of primitive religiosity towards sort of modern technology, right? And um, it seems that in Valencia, you see evidence of the city council, um, which is my my sort of source basis, this is looking specifically the city council of Valencia, the city council making um, infrastructure improvements well before um, you see them having a really solid tradition of asking God for help right and so it's kind of it's kind of flipped in that way yeah
0: interesting so so do you think there would have been like it's easy for us as moderns to kind of put a, a radical dichotomy between the two what what sort of would have and, and even particularly when you talk about like locus you discuss how you can you can do both at the same time um what what sort of would have been their th- kind of theological framework for these material improvements as well
1: yeah so in on a sort of high intellectual level right we have um, you know kind of I guess you know the sort of medieval understanding of where the weather comes from mm-hmm. um, where all of, where the where kind of natural phenomena come from um, is shaped largely by sort of Aristotle and kind mm-hmm. of Aristotelian um, scholars in the middle ages and sort of thinking about that there are natural immediate causes for all phenomena that, right. you know, it is not as though every time it rains like God is up there shaking a watering can, you know, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is a sort of, there are reasons why it might rain, why it might be a drought, why there might be an earthquake that are completely natural. But at the same time, nothing in the material world happens without the sort of great, you know, with contrary to God's will. And so there is a sort of ultimate cause mm-hmm. that bind to more or less everything that happens. And so because of that, it can be pretty flexible, right? You can, it's it's kind of about how you interpret things. Um, you can interpret a natural disaster by thinking entirely about kind of what are the sort of intermediate steps that got us to this point you know, what, you know, how much, you know, what is causing this much rain? Or you can think, you know, what happened more broadly. And in some ways, you could think about this as a question about how did this come to happen versus why is it happening to me?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a, um, right. you know, there's kind of Sort of nuts and bolts level that you can understand it, or you can understand a kind of broader meaning. Um, And we have this to some extent. I mean, a modern analogy might be thinking about weather events and climate change.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, You know, thinking about how whenever there is a weather event, municipal officials have to interpret to some extent have to make a decision about how they're going to talk about that natural disaster you know right. they they can a hurricane or you know a or a big storm or tornado or something like that you know they can talk about it in terms of this just happened and our city is really resilient and we're going to build back from this mm-hmm. or they can say you know these things happen more frequently because of climate change and therefore we need to think a lot about climate change and you know this is part of a larger picture right and you know god's punishment and climate change are not exactly the same thing obviously mm-hmm. but you know in some sense medieval municipal officials are facing a similar sort of calculus in terms of when something happens you know when there is a drought when there's a flood when there are locusts do they talk about it as part of as a kind of broader as you know as having some larger meaning mm-hmm. or not um and it does, it varies according to natural disaster, at least in Valencia, sort of how how they find it seems, how they find it most useful to talk about. Um, and in all of this, of course, it's not really a question of what the city councilmen themselves believe in their souls. It's it's mm-hmm. impossible to get to that. It's right. in some sense, what what is really, what I'm really looking at is what they think of, what they think is expedient. Mm-hmm. And so that's some mix of what is, you know, what is going to be believable, you know, what's sort of plausible to the people they're talking to, um, because they need it to be in some sense plausible, but also what is going to be politically useful to them um, on some level. And so, you know, for example, we might think, you know, it might be particularly useful to bring God and bring kind of religious rituals into it when we're talking about drought, because droughts have a lot of waiting and there's a lot of waiting involved when people might think that they might get angry at the city council, you know? And yes. so it, it might give some people something to do um, while they are waiting for it to rain. And, you know, we might think it might be less useful in some sense, um, you know, to to sort of focus on um, on divine punishment during a flood because they happen much more quickly and the conditions outside are much more dangerous. That doesn't mean they never do um, do religious rituals for floods, but they are much less common, even though, of course, there's a really obvious example of a flood being caused by God in the Bible. Um, yes. and, you know, it's a little bit less. Um, so, you know, you'd think if they were just going for, um, you know, kind of following the kind of the religious examples they had, mm-hmm. um, they would sort of really emphasize it on floods but they they don't so much
0: no so so for this will probably be cross posted on a couple of different new books network channels um so for for listeners who are more into environmental history and these problems but don't have the iberian background tell us a little bit about uh the setting of iberia both environmentally and kind of the the background political context to what's going on in this time period
1: Sure, absolutely. So Iberia is known in the Middle Ages for being kind of on the frontier between the Christian world and the Islamic world. Um, So it is the whole of the peninsula comes under um, Islamic rule in 711. um, And over the course of the rest of the Middle Ages, up until 1492, with the fall of Granada, um, there is a sort of slow and very intermittent chipping away at that rule um, by the various Chris- Christian principalities that arise in the very north of, north of the peninsula and kind of spread southward. That is retrospectively sometimes called the Reconquest or the Reconquista, um, although that using one term for it really implies kind of that it's all that it's all one united project, much more than it actually was. Right, it was multiple different kingdoms. Um, and very intermittent. There are periods where there's sort of a lot of movement of the frontier and periods where there's not so much at all. Um, A lot of just inter-Christian fighting too. uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, Lots of inter-Christian fighting, lots of um, inter-Muslim fighting, occasionally alliances across religious boundaries. You know, this is not, this is painted particularly in retrospect as a very, as a purely religious conflict, almost a crusade. Um, That is something that is a useful way of talking about it for many of the kings involved but is not so much a reflection of what was really going on um valencia is relatively far south on the mediterranean coast um and so it comes under christian rule in the 13th century which is a period where the frontier is moving pre- is moving very fast because um the um mohad rule has um, has on the on the Muslim side of the border has more or less collapsed. Um, there are sort of a lot of kind of small principalities that are relatively weak. Um, and it is possible for um, the Christian kings in the north to make large territorial gains, mm-hmm. um, which they are able then to do. And so um, the Balearic Islands and the kingdom of Valencia, the Balearic Islands are Mallorca and Menorca and Ibiza um, and Formentera um, all come on under the rule of what's called the Crown of Aragon, which is the kind of Mediterranean principality. And then Castile, which is more or less in the middle, also gets a bunch of territory at this time. And then of course there's Portugal. Um, and so, um, so there is like a, this is a period where the frontier is moving very quickly um, southward, which means... That there is more territory that Christians have taken than they are really able to settle in a kind of settler colonialist model right away. What the Christians, I think, would have ideally wanted to do is um conquer these regions, take all of expel all of the Muslims, and create a purely Christian society because that is what, you know, all of their ideals were telling them was the right way. To, to live, to have a sort of single religious society. Um, you know, basically everybody in the Middle Ages thought that mixing of religious communities was dangerous and problematic. Um, they can't really do that. And they particularly can't really do that in Valencia, um, partly because of Valencia's environment, in mm-hmm. fact. Um, so Valencia is a region um, that had been Extensively irrigated by Muslim farmers um, under uh, Islamic rule, um, and so it it is one of the richest agricultural areas in the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean, famously, of course, it doesn't rain a lot, um, particularly during the growing season. So you're telling me the rain in this part of Spain
0: doesn't mainly fall on the plain.
1: <laughs> um, well, the plain is mostly in Castile, but yes, um, more or less. Um, and so basically, you need if if you're going to have I mean, anywhere in the Mediterranean, if you want to have really, really productive agriculture, you need irrigation. Um, And so, you know, famously Egypt, right, the Mm -hmm. place where, you know, you can have really, really productive agriculture because of the Nile. Um, There are a couple of other places like that. And Valencia is one of them to some degree because of this network of irrigation canals that branches out from all of the rivers in the kingdom. Um, It's constructed sort of over a period of centuries on a fairly small scale, but kind of additively, it then ends up being this fairly massive set of systems um, of irrigation canals Um, and and this irrigated land needs to be fairly intensively managed by the farmers who live on it. That is the farmers who live on it need to keep maintaining the canals or else the system will fall apart. So it needs to be densely settled to work. Uh, That means that the conquerors are not able to just expel the whole population at once. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what they do to some extent in areas of Castile that are conquered around the same time that are much drier. They basically kick everyone out and, sort of do a kind of ranching business in a kind of it's almost like the American West, like that kind of model. Mm-hmm. Um but um the but Valencia, I mean one one scholar compared Valencia to the British Raj as a kind of colonial model. It's much more that they are forced to work with a large existing population that they are not able to get rid of at mm-hmm. least all at once, no matter how much they want to. Um, and of course, the fact that they do want to shapes the whole thing. Right. Um, but you know, so this is not, you know, we're not talking about kind of um, multi-confessional paradise here at all. But um, but it is it is sort of practically the case that um, this is a this is a place that has more people, a sort of a greater greater number of people of different religions for a longer period of time than in almost any part, other part of the Christian world. Um, basically, it is in a sort of real sense, a land of three religions, um, all the way through the early 16th century when most of the Muslims are forcibly converted. Um, and then, well, the city of Valencia, the, um, the Jewish community is forcibly converted in 1391, although there remain Jews in, um, in the kingdom of Valencia until 1492. And then um, the Muslims are forcibly converted in the early 16th century and then expelled in the early 17th century. So, um, But there is a sort of fairly long period of time when there are people who are at first Muslim, Jewish, and Christian all living in the same place at the same time. Um, and then subsequently people of Muslim and Jewish ancestry and people of Christian ancestry all living in the same place at the same time which is something that modern scholars and particularly North American scholars have found super fascinating mm-hmm. um, because it is, you know, sometimes we think of, um, of the Middle Ages as a little bit more of a kind of um, homogenous time. Um, it was something that medieval people themselves thought was a problem, um, that it was a kind of barrier to, rule, to correct rule. Um, and so in some sense, this was, I mean, at least I argue in the book and many other um, scholars of Valencia, I think, um, would come to a similar conclusion that this is something that the government of Valencia was aware of as what they would have perceived as sort of weakness that they have, that um, yeah. it's something they have to make up for, just in some sense. Yeah.
0: So this is obviously the same of your book, but how, how do they use the city uh, and its streets and establishments and everything to kind of work on making up for that and christianizing the city
1: yeah so what i have found um is that they they start particularly in the 1370s um so the conquest of the city of valencia is in 1238 so you know early 13th century um There are not a lot of records um, before thirteen hundred on the municipal level, Um, but there's sort of you know there are various waves of encouraging Christian settlement, particularly um, in the you know in the um, agricultural areas and also in the city. The Muslim population of the city was technically expelled en masse right after the conquest, um, but they basically just created a Muslim quarter directly outside the city walls. so, you know, there were actually Muslims living there for the whole time, and there were Jews living there for the whole time.
0: And then the city walls eventually expand to include the Muslims, right?
1: That's right. So um, the that area ultimately was inside the walls as well. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so we see kind of they are trying in outside of the walls to um, settle the richest irrigation, irrigated lands with Christians, and they mostly managed that by the early 14th century um and but there are you know but there are still muslims in the kingdom and there are still there's still a muslim community in the city itself as well as a jewish community um in by the 13th 1370s which is a period when the council has sort of emerged from um a period of political crisis. Um, In in the mid 14th century, there was the Black Death. Obviously there was a rebellion against the King. There was a war with Castile. There was sort of a lot of things going on and coming out of that in the 1370s, the council has kind of more capacity to do things. And one of the things that they seem to have decided to do is uh, try to rebuild the city to make it look more Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, so what they meant by that was that they wanted the street plan, um, to look more like a Christian city and particularly more like a kind of Christian ideal of a city. So, you know, Augustine has things to say about this, um, various Christian writers have things to say about this. The ideal Christian city is supposed to have a kind of rectilinear grid street plan, mm-hmm. um, Some ideals are, you know, everything, the streets are supposed to meet, the major streets are supposed to meet in the shape of a cross, which is very symbolic, but, um, you know, people have various different interpretations, but the idea is the streets are supposed to be wide, they're supposed to be straight, and they're supposed to be um, kind of rectilinear. And most medieval European cities don't actually look like that. Of course, that's not really the way that we think about medieval European cities looking. Some of the new towns that are sort of planned a little bit later in the Middle Ages do have more of a grid street plan and what's really the the point here is that the the failure to live up to that in i don't know england or germany would just be like oh well you know it could be better but in the context of this place that was recently conquered and has these large non christian populations the failure to live up to that that kind of ideal of a rectilinear street rectilinear street plan was perceived as the city looking too Islamic, that it had mm. been incompletely conquered,
0: right. um,
1: incompletely Christianized. Um and particularly they noticed that Valencia's street plan had a lot of narrow streets and a lot of dead-end alleys. Um the term for this was Azucach, um and the which were kind of in, in the sort of original plan of the city under Islamic rule, a lot of the times these alleys would have been sort of semi-private um, and a particular kin group would have lived kind of all around the alley. Um, but, you know, they felt like these were, gave you the feel when you were walking through the city of it being a um, an Islamic city rather than the Christian city. And they really didn't like that. And so um, in the 1370s, they start issuing the, all these permits um, to either open these alleys as through streets or pri- or totally privatize them so that they're not streets anymore at all. And this in their minds seems to have um, have been working to change the kind of feel of this, this sort of vibe of the city mm. basically, um, to, to kind of make it feel more like a Christian city as you're walking through it. They also do a couple of bigger projects to widen some of the kind of major thoroughfares. And this seems to be connected to some extent with a larger interest in Christian processions through the city, um, which is again, a kind of distinctly Christian kind of civic performance. This is not so much a thing that the streets were used for um, before the Christian conquest. and so, you know, there's a sort of new interest in a feast like Corpus Christi, or um, you know, the there are processions to commemorate the anniversary of the conquest, um, which is something that is actually still celebrated in Valencia today. Um, that's um October 9th, uh, which is celebrated as Valencia's National Day. Um, and um, uh, and so and that that commemoration starts um starts in the middle ages um and they um they kind of elaborate a whole a whole sort of processional cycle that is both christian and kind of also almost say like christian nationalist in the sense of like kind of specifically the christian history of their particular area
0: and it's i'm just out of curiosity does that procession or festival today like still retain some of the more medieval or religious elements
1: you know um I've only actually seen it I've only I've only had a chance to be there once. Um there are a number of these kind of processions all over Valencia um that all over the kingdom the region of Valencia that and each of them is on the particular day that that their their particular city was conquered. So, you know, they're kind of spread all around the month of October basically. Um and they're a little I think I think probably it, it's fair to call them pretty problematic. They um they tend to have processions of People dressed up as Moors and Christians, um, and and the the costuming involved is um, is a little bit uh, a little bit problematic. I would say um, there is, you know, it is it gets a little complicated. I think um, because in in the sort of modern way, in the way that his, this kind of history is taught in modern Spain to some extent there is a, a very widespread recognition that um the kind of the period of so, so what we might call the this kind of period of Islamic Spain or sometimes we call it the Andalusi period is what makes Spain really interesting and special.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that is some that is widely understood as you know as something valuable um when you sort of ask regular people about this. Um, but it's it's a little bit exoticized, I would say. Um, and it's not so much, it is still to some extent understood as sort of separate from the real history of Spain, which begins with the conquest. Um, there is, you know, there's a lot of sort of thinking about, you know, in the same way, I think that, um, you know, that Americans will often think of sort of the history of their state as beginning with its colonization, Mm -hmm. um, Valencians would think about their history beginning with twelve thirty eight, even though they know perfectly well that there's a lot of stuff beyond that and they will talk about that too. Yeah. It's kind of similar even
0: to like English. Uh and start if you start learning your kings at ten sixty six, you've
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's a similar time period there too.
1: Yeah. And there is actually a similar. So in the same way that, um, you know, in English law, still, you know, time immemorial is technically understood to be the beginning of the reign of Henry II, I believe. Um, You know, there's a kind of time immemorial legal fiction that is the time of the conquest. Mm -hmm. um, That sort of, you know, that is the point of, you know, if you've proved your property claim back that far, you don't need to go any further because that's just like the deep time. Um, You need to worry too much about that time.
0: Uh, so so with these streets and dead ends, um this kind of connects to another topic you bring up at multiple points, particularly with the water of stagnation and corruption. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about these concepts and
1: yeah, so the um the way that the city council talks about this project, um, it's partly talking about it in terms of Christianization, um, but it's also in some sense um, thinking and there is a sense of it as their job as sort of stewards of the the civic body, as it were, is to keep the body healthy in the way that um that a medieval sort of a sort of medieval medical understanding would be to keep the body healthy. So um in in medieval medicine there is a sense that um that there should be sort of constant flow and then kind of flushing out of impurities so in in medieval medicine the blood isn't is not understood to circulate um it's supposed to come from the center to the extremities and then it's supposed to be kind of dealt like the waste matter is supposed to be dealt with because it does if it pools in the extremities then like that causes stagnation and that's a problem and so the idea analogous to that is very much that the council's job is to keep everything moving And because anything else will be a a threat both to the sort of physical health of the city, um, and the kind of moral health in a sense. So on the one hand, for example, there is a concern with um, keeping the the sewers within the city moving. Um, and so the sewer system connects to the canal system within the city, um, and there is a sense basically that it doesn't matter how how dirty the water is as long as it's moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, can keep the sewer system kind of moving, then it is not a threat to health. But if something blocks it and it sort of pools somewhere, that's when it starts to threaten people's health. Um, and so all the kind of regulation of the sewer system is about keeping it moving. But then there is a sort of analogous way of understanding um, this: sort of the, their efforts with the city streets that um, these these dead end alleys um, they talk about a lot as harboring trash, right? That people will kind of throw their waste in them and it will kind of build up as this kind of, you know, in this kind of stagnant sort of way, and that it will harbor criminal behavior, that that sort of the bad elements of society kind of lurk in these alleys and, you know, will, will commit crimes. Um, and so there is, all these things sort of layer on top of each other as a sort of way that like, the to way to keep the way to keep the city, you know, clean, but also kind of running smoothly in both a kind of a health sense and a kind of moral and kind sort of political order sort of sense um, is to have everything flowing, have the traffic flowing, have the water flowing, um, and not have these sort of little dead ends anywhere. Right. Hmm. So uh, Course, the you know they start over the course you know as they kind of get going with this project they also start to talk about the Jewish quarter as the kind of biggest dead end of all right um, in that sense fourteenth yeah, century Lovely. yes yeah um yeah so so once we get sort of closer you know to the end of the fourteenth century and as they're kind of getting very you know they've been doing these um these projects to close these dead end alleys over the thirteen seventies and thirteen eighties um a real limit to this these efforts is the Jewish quarter, um, which is fairly centrally located in the city. Um, and it is surrounded by walls and it doesn't technically belong to the council. Um, it is more under royal authority and that authority is designated to the Jews themselves in, in a lot of respects. Um, and so it's this kind of big area of the city that has a limited number of entrances and that is sort of outside of their control. Um, and I would say the sort of the the power implications to that, the fact that the council does not like the sort of limitations on their power that that provides, the fact that the council doesn't like that this that this area is a kind of um, impediment to their sort of vision of the city. All of that is layered over the sort of baseline anti-Judaism that of course they have, and sort of becomes this, and so they become sort of very concerned with. Um, with the ways that the Jewish quarter is kind of holding, holding back their vision of the city. Yeah. Hmm.
0: So, I mean, in all of these, we're kind of tying together the civic infrastructure and the moral or religious life of the city. Um, How how does this, the shift of emphasis that your book kind of predicates and explores, like how does this, why why does it occur?
1: Um, Yeah. So at the same, you know, so they're doing all of this within the city walls. Um, it doesn't really, at this point, it's not really that connected to the larger environment. So they're they're sort of interested in kind of improving the um, the city environment in these kind of in these ways that have implications for health, but are not kind of as much environmentally um, oriented. At the same time that they're doing all of this within the city walls, um, they are responding to natural disasters by um, initiating infrastructure projects that sort of directly solve the problems on the landscape. So, you know, again, in the 1370s and 1380s, when there's a flood, when there's a drought, when there's um, at least the threat of disease, um, they will initiate infrastructure, you know, building or surveying new canals um, to bring new water into the, um, the irrigated area during droughts for example um diverting the river to sort of um guard against kind of potential flood disasters um diverting it back again once they realized that the water was pouring pooling in the empty riverbed and causing disease so um you know sort of cha- physically changing the landscape to provide a long-term solution to these short-term disasters this is the sort of first way that they're confronting natural disasters um like very, very directly on the landscape. And this is why I say that the sort of infrastructure um, kind of material approach really comes first. In the meantime, of course, again, at the same time, they're kind of very busily rebuilding the city, um, the kind of the place that has the sort of more ceremonial symbolic importance into this kind of Christian vision that they have. Um, And that culminates in some ways um, in their response to the Anti-Jewish riots of 1391, which is this kind of big inflection point. Um, so this is all across Spain. Um, in 1391, there are um, violent assaults against Jewish quarters. Um, many Jews are killed, even more Jews are or forcibly converted um, to Christianity. And of course, um, because baptism is considered irrevocable, even when it's forced, um, they are not allowed to, um, to go back to being Jews. Um, so this is a a sort of wave of violence that effectively destroys um, a number of Jewish communities across the Iberian Peninsula. In Valencia, um, as far as we know, the council, the city council doesn't start the riot and they don't participate in it. Again, as far as we know, they're a bit incompetent when it comes to stopping it. Uh, the thing that we really know that they did, though, um, and this is pretty clear from their documents, is that they're jumping on it almost immediately, trying to use it as an excuse to get rid of the Jewish quarter. Um, So, you know, they are not necessarily, as far as we know, out there killing Jews, but they are, you know, as soon as, basically as soon as the dust has settled, they're writing to the King saying, you know, the Jewish quarter, is I mean they, they really they call, they describe it exactly the same way that they would describe one of these dead end alleys they say you know it is harboring trash trash and criminal behavior and we need to take the walls down and we need to reintegrate it into the larger space of the city and we need to have there not be Jews there anymore um, Jews living there anymore and um, and so they're kind of I mean in some sense the sort of effort it, you know everything sort of culminates with this effort um, to to kind of rebuild the city in this kind of um, triumphal Christian image. Um, They sort of managed to do this in the kind of couple of decades after 1391. They sort of managed to erase, uh, largely erase the Jewish presence from the landscape um, of the city. And so as we go into the 15th century, um, they are working with a city that they have been able to remake more in the image that they, that they want, um, that it, it looks more Christian in the sense that the kind of street plan has Christian, has more of a Christian feel. Um, there are no longer able allowed to be Jews living there, at least not openly. Um, and so what they have to work with is in some ways a kind of better, better set for, um, uh, for religious ritual. And so then, what we start to see um, as we get into the so sort of second quarter of the fifteenth century um, is that when natural disasters happen, city councils are choosing more and more to respond with rituals rather than with infrastructure projects. Um, so instead of saying, "There's a drought, we're going to go build build a canal," which you know they had been planning all these infrastructure projects many of them didn't get finished um but it, it was kind of like they would respond by starting a project and not all of them got finished many of them didn't get finished that's happens today too it's a thing um yeah. that you know they their they their ambitions exceeded their abilities in many um In many respects, but that was the way that they tended to respond to droughts in the in the late 14th century. By the time we get to the 15th century, there will be a drought and instead they will organize something called a rogation procession. Right. Um, So this is a procession where they announce it the day or two before um, the town crier announces it. Um, They enjoin all good Christian men and women to gather at the cathedral uh, in the center of the city. Um, and then they will do a processional route from the cathedral to some other church or monastery within the city limits, usually, or just outside. Um, and then back again. And through the whole course of this, they are supposed to be praying to God and the Virgin Mary and all the saints to intervene and um, stop whatever they, or you know either make it rain or make it stop raining or lift the plague, whatever they want to happen. Um, and these, these kind of um processions, you know, they're nowhere near as elaborate as something like a Corpus Christi procession that would have like, you know, big floats and, you know, like um mystery plays. You know, it's it's not it's not that elaborate, um, but it would be um it's something they could organize on fairly short notice. And basically from the second quarter of the 15th century on, they just start um, they start organizing a ton of these. Um you know they and they will sort of organize them really really regularly throughout a disaster. On average, um, I think you know in the 14th century they would do these maybe once every couple, once every two or three years. And by the 15th century, they're doing on average, I think it's something like four per year. Um, so you know, and in any given year, if there were a lot of disasters, it would obviously be many more than that. Um, so. All of a sudden, this becomes their main response to disaster instead of responding by saying, you know, we're going to fix the landscape, fix this problem on the landscape. It becomes we're going to solve this problem by asking God to stop the disaster. Um. And I think part of what is going on there, you know, you think like, it, like in, again, in our minds, that feels almost like it's going backwards, that they had this ability to do this very modern thing of kind of creating infrastructure, and they stopped doing that so much, and they start doing religious rituals instead. Um, and the way I would understand that is Basically, that the Council of the early fifteenth century, in the wake of all of these um, all of these projects to kind of Christianize the center of the city, um is able to put on much more effective rituals, effective in a kind of a um performative performance sense, that basically a ritual where the whole population is marching through these streets that look Christian. And that, and that has sort of have been kind of renovated to look more Christian feels effective in a way that they are, um, what they are really doing with these rituals is kind of reflecting smugly on the conquest and the sort of process of colonization that has gone on over the previous sort of century and a half, right. almost 200 years, actually, that they are reminding themselves, reminding God, reminding everybody that, they did a really good thing from a Christian perspective in make in sort of conquering the city and making it Christian. And that because of that, God's going to help them because they are already on the inside. Basically they, they are already kind of beloved by God, um, for having, having pulled this off. Um, and that is something that is more visible to their constituents, um, and sort of cheaper, and easier to pull off in some ways than actually building a canal. Uh, and so it seems like it's a choice that they start making more and more often. Hmm.
0: Well, I'm afraid we're up against it, although I would love to talk about this more, um, but kind of a- as we tie a bow on this, what are you hoping that this book contributes to the fields whether Iberian or environmental history?
1: Hmm, really good question. So what I'm hoping is a couple of things. Um, there has not been a lot of work on medieval in on environmental history in Iberia. And I think there's a lot to be said um, about that. I think there's a lot, a lot more that should that should be explored about um about the sort of environment of Iberia generally, but particularly about what environmental history, how people relate to environments in mixed religious contexts. Um, there has been some work about. People sort of thinking about the environment um, with a kind of a religious sensibility, but it's been done basically in kind of very homo- religiously homogenous places. Um, and so, I'm interested in what um, what religious, what kind of religious difference and awareness of religious difference can sort of does to people's relationships with the environment. Um, and I think it also, hopefully, um, can give iberian history a sort of new avenue to explore because medieval iberian history has for a long time examined the sort of interrelationships between religious groups um and you know i won't say i mean there there is always going to be more to be done with with that kind of thing but i think it's something that has been relatively unexplored is kind of how those interrelationships go beyond just the communities and kind of um interact with with the environments and with the places where they where they are right right. those people live side by side not just face to face yeah and that they live in a place that they Mm -hmm. aren't just kind of you know this isn't just kind of a three-body problem of Mm -hmm. muslims and jews orbiting each other they are actually in a place also and and that is also part of it um and and in environments
0: very good and if you dear listener want to know more about this place if this is interested you or if you want to learn more that you haven't heard about, about Vincent Ferrer and locust hunting and why a salt lagoon became fresh in the 14th century. Uh, the Keys to Bread and Wine, is it from Cornell, Un- Cornell University Press and available wherever you find your books? Um Dr. Progressive, thanks again uh, for coming on. Are you currently working on any other projects we can look forward to?
1: Um, I am currently working on a um A new book project on the adoption of quarantine um, in 15th century Spain, um, where there's a little bit about that in this book, and I have more things to say about it, so it's uh, hopefully going to become a new book.
0: Very good. Well, we'll look forward to that. Um, Thanks again for talking and listening, whatever your role was in this podcast, and have a great day.